Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kotick in for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us on this day of unprecedented turmoil and uncertainty at social media site Twitter and what is being called a mass exodus. A large but still undetermined number of Twitter workers have opted to leave the firm and take severance rather than sign Elon Musk's extreme hardcore work commitment pledge. It is by all measures a stunning rebuke of Elon Musk's vision for Twitter, raising urgent questions over how he can keep the site up and running. Twitter offices have reportedly been shut until Monday as Musk regroups. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Tesla analyst Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities, who has been critical of Musk's Twitter purchase, warning of the knock-on effects it will have for the EV firm. For now, U.S. stocks look set to rise for the first time in three sessions. Europe is also higher. A choppy week for stocks as Fed officials push back on hopes for a rate hike pause. Officials want to see a sustained improvement in inflation first. Inflation becoming a greater problem in Japan. New numbers showing core prices rising at their fastest pace in four decades. The head of the Bank of Japan saying now is not the time to begin tightening policy. Japanese stocks finishing the week lower along with the rest of the major Asian markets. All right, let's get straight onto Twitter and exactly who is left to run the ailing social media site. It's anyone's guess at this point, but we do know many of the staff appear to have rejected Elon Musk's demands to work hardcore. One former executive describing what's going on there as a mass exodus. It's probably no coincidence that Twitter's locking staff out of its offices, including its San Francisco headquarters, presumably for security reasons. Let's get more now. Joining me now, Oliver Darcy and Claire Duffy, two brilliant heads on this. Oliver, I'm going to start with you about these resignations. They come after Musk, you know, fired half of Twitter staff last month, reducing its workforce to around 3,700 employees. Correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm curious at this point, how is Twitter even operational at this point? One thing I tweeted today was, hello, is this thing on? (laughs) Yeah, I think death is really in the air over at Twitter. And the question is, like you said, is can this hugely important communications platform stay online? And I I think we need to broaden this out. Um, Twitter has been so integral to the way world leaders communicate, to the way newsrooms gather uh, news across the world, the way people express themselves in particularly repressive countries and communicate. It's a very important communications platform that seems to have been basically gutted from the inside at this point. I mean, you talked about how Elon Musk laid off about half the staff a couple weeks ago. At that point, they realized maybe they were cutting too much. Maybe they were cutting to the bone, and they rehired some of those people that they laid off. Now you're having, just a couple weeks later, a mass exodus of employees. Uh, I'm told hundreds of employees uh, last night basically uh, submitted their resignations and decided they weren't going to work hardcore with Musk. And that's really thrown the future of the social media platform into question. 
Yeah, Claire, I mean, we are seeing RIP, rest in peace Twitter, trending on Twitter. I had to look twice when I saw that. Do you think this really spells the end of the, of the social media website? Right. The vibe on Twitter last night was very much sort of like last day of high school. People are saying they might be sending their last tweets and wondering what's going to happen next. And, you know, we're already seeing some glitches pop up on the platform. You know, people complained about uh, seeing a test page go live on the trending section of the website. This morning, I tried to go through and download my Twitter data, and I couldn't because the two-factor authentication feature wasn't working. And so I think it's possible that, you know, we've seen some of these really important, critical employees, people who are in charge of keeping the platform on online exiting last night. And that could have a real impact in terms of the platform's ability to function. I think we might also see Twitter just sort of become less relevant. People decide to leave the platform, decamp to other platforms. You know, the conversation on Twitter the last few weeks has been all Elon Musk all the time. People are only talking about him and what he's doing to this platform. And so major users of the platform who have been used to getting attention for other things might sort of get tired of the fact that it's the Elon show on Twitter now and and go somewhere else. Yeah, Oliver, I can see confidence suffering on Twitter just through, you know, reading other people's tweets. Where do you think people would go if they leave Twitter? And and can you tell right now how many uh, Twitter users are actually leaving the platform? Well, I mean, there is there are other social media platforms, obviously. I'm noticing, for instance, that I'm getting a lot of Instagram requests in the past 24 hours because I think people are trying to prepare for what happens if Twitter leaves. But I, I think a main point is something to bring up is that trust is just so key to Twitter. Trust uh, between users and the platform and trust between uh, Twitter and advertisers. And you've seen that trust just basically evaporate over the past a uh, few weeks as Elon has taken over this platform. And what I'm curious about is our world leaders, our celebrities, people who want to make sure that they're on a secure platform, are they going to remain on Twitter? Because I think once they start leaving and decamping for other platforms, you're going to see a lot of other users uh, do so as well in a, in a big way. Yeah, safety is a huge issue, right, Claire? I mean, you spoke about the technical issues. I mean, the reality is, is Musk really doesn't have a lot of experience managing a social media company. How much do you think he's over his head there? I mean, we did see him tweet um, after this mass exodus. How do you make a small fortune in social media? Start with a large one. But the thing is, he doesn't really have experience in managing one of these, right? Right, Allison. I mean, Elon tried to get out of buying Twitter. He tried release for months to get out of buying this company. He did not want to do it and then ended up being forced to take over Twitter. And now is sort of having to grapple with that. And, you know, I think that on one hand, you're seeing all of the potential fallout of letting all of these employees go. But he's also going to have these debt payments from paying $44 billion for Twitter coming up real quick. And he's got to find that money somewhere. And so I think you also see him sort of scrambling to try to cut costs because he really overpaid for this company. And now he has to sort of deal with that and move forward. Yeah. Where will Twitter be in six months, let alone a year? Oh, yeah. Well, this conversation is just beginning. Claire Duffy, Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. And later in the show, we'll be live outside Twitter headquarters in San Francisco for the latest. A red card given to beer. The Qatar World Cup decides to ban the sale of alcohol at stadiums just two days before the big kickoff. Budweiser tweeted and then deleted the response. Well, this is awkward. I want to bring in Amanda Davies. She is live in Doha with the details. This is kind of awkward. Uh, You know, Budweiser had a huge sponsorship here, uh, $75 billion. What happens with that? And, And let's back up. Why was this decision made in the first place to ban alcohol? 
Yeah, Alison, um, it was only three weeks ago that Budweiser were talking about the uh, expectation of skyrocketing beer sales over uh, the next five weeks with expectation that the amount of beer sold here over the next five weeks was going to exceed what is normally sold in Qatar in the space of a year. They have been a long-standing major sponsor of the Football World Cup for over a decade. And what we are seeing in reality is a real hardening of Qatar's stance that this World Cup is happening on their terms. A first World Cup in the Middle East, a first World Cup in a Muslim country. And they've said, yes, everybody is welcome. That has always been their message. But please respect our culture and our religion. And really since day one with the awarding of this tournament on that now infamous day in Zurich in 2010, they have challenged the norms, not only with that double bidding process of 2018 and 2022, but then this World Cup being moved to the winter time, a first ever winter World Cup, not that traditional June, July period of time. And then we had the long-standing, long-scheduled opening game of the tournament due to take place on Monday the 21st, moved a day earlier to Uh, Sunday the 20th, Qatar against Ecuador. So Qatar get their big moment in the spotlight, which is their first ever match at a World Cup finals with the eyes of the world watching. The feeling is, Alison, that yes, football needs to respect and embrace cultures from all around the world. It shouldn't be judged just on Western rules. But when you look at the statement that's been issued by the Football Supporters Federation, they say this, if they change their minds on this at a moment's notice, let's just remind ourselves less than 48 hours until the kickoff, with no explanation, supporters will have understandable concerns about whether they'll fulfill other promises relating to accommodation, transport or cultural issues. And yes, there are 1.2 million fans expected from across the world over the next five weeks here into Doha. But this is not just the local, uh, the international fans that we're talking about. What we're also looking at is what happens to the local concerns, the local issues, the promises that have been made about the treatment of the LGBTQ plus community. And what about those promises that have been made of better conditions for the migrant workers that we've heard so much about? Yeah, there's been huge uh, criticism of those policies toward LGBT culture and foreign workers. So there's a lot of talk around it. What about action? Well, (laughs) that is a very big question. And that is what so many teams and organizations have been calling for in the recent weeks, in the run-up to this tournament. When... 2010 happened and Qatar was awarded this tournament, there was nothing in the FIFA statutes that took account human rights in a country that the World Cup was visiting. As of 2017, that policy was inserted into the rules of voting and bidding countries for these major tournaments. But obviously where we are here and now is the pressure is on what is happening in in Qatar. There is a widespread concession that there have been huge improvements in the kafala system 
the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar since 2010 in the build-up to this tournament, but things haven't changed enough. And there is those widespread reports we've seen from the human rights organizations, the likes of Human Rights Watch, the likes of Amnesty International. They have talked about the thousands of migrant worker deaths that have happened here in Doha in the run-up to this tournament. That is something that Qatari officials vehemently deny. They say the number is less than 10, with more who have died in non-football-related um, incidents. But that is not stopping the now weekly, week on, week off reports that are coming out of these mm -hmm. human rights organisations, putting the pressure on Qatari authorities and FIFA, world football's governing body, to do more. Even within football, European football's governing body, UEFA, have sent a letter signed by 10 of their member associations saying what real change is happening. We want to see real compensation for the victims of the migrant workers who have died over the last few years. We want to see the establishment of a migrant worker centre to help the workers here in Qatar. Interestingly, the FIFA president Gianni Infantino hasn't yet publicly addressed the media. He is due to do that here in Doha on Saturday morning. It's set to be, I think it's fair to say, fairly explosive. Okay, Amanda Davies, thanks for all that great perspective. Live from Doha. In Ukraine, President Zelensky says more than 10 million people are without electricity as Russia continues a wave of missile attacks. The blackouts come as temperatures across Ukraine are plummeting. Nick Robertson is live for us in Kyiv with the latest. So uh, with so many people facing the cold without power, I'm curious what, what more, if anything, can Ukraine do to protect its power grid, Nick? Uh, more air defense systems. That's what it continues to say. Uh, and the reality is that's what's required to protect it from those barrages of missiles that come. And it's not just the electricity that's being impacted now. One energy company here says 40% of uh, users are without electricity. Um, we know that the communications are now being affected. The big city of Kharkiv in the east, that was cut off uh, from, from phone communications because of the impact of not enough electricity to keep those uh, phone relay stations up and running and that's happening to other cities also the um, gas suppliers in the country saying they are seeing their facilities being hit more often now so what can people do um, get back to basics it's find somewhere warm and safe that you can survive through during the power cuts that are now plentiful if you can and you can burn wood or a wood substitute get that a few lucky people um, do still have those gas supplies but it's not just the big cities we were out in the east of the country close to the front lines there and and even the medium-sized cities out there people are just going to be struggling through this winter. Gas just came back to Kramatorsk, a boon of battlefield gains. Maria, a 70-year-old pensioner, wasn't expecting it, had bought a wood-burning stove. It was hard without gas, she tells us, and now, thanks to God, we're OK. But for how long? When the government turned the gas back on here at the beginning of November, they did it without any big announcement because, like every other critical service here, gas depends on electricity. And that's what Russia's targeting. 
When I met the mayor here three months ago, he was urging residents to leave ahead of winter. We do not have uh, gas at all and it's not possible to repair gas lines. When we meet now, he tells me the population has actually increased by 30 to 35,000 people, over 80,000 total. Residents returning home, even though the situation, because Russia is targeting the power grid, is much more precarious. Lives, he fears, may be lost in what he expects to be the harshest winter since independence 30 years ago. When the electricity disappears, cities are plunged into darkness. Anything can happen. Boilers can stop, gas distribution networks can stop. You can be left without everything, even without heat. Keeping warm is on everyone's minds. This factory making heating logs from sunflower seeds. Demand outstripping capacity. Our requests have gone up three or fourfold. We don't have enough trucks for deliveries. They're working at full capacity here. Everything that's ready shipped out immediately. But the whole system here, extremely vulnerable. The electricity could go off at any moment. Every log delivered, a few hours spared from the cold. Each sack, perhaps a week's peace of mind. Has he got everything that he ordered? <laughs> His answer, everything, everything, all good, perfect. I don't have words. Food is also on people's minds this winter. Mostly pensioners, mostly poor, bundle up against the cold. A free bread distribution tempting them out of frigid homes. If they help us like they do here, it would be fine, 84-year-old Yulia tells us. I'm a child of World War II, she says. We were cold, hungry, but we survived. Across town, another pensioner, 82-year-old Alexandra, shows us the basement she shares with neighbours, already stockpiling food for winter. No gas for warmth here, just an old electric heater. But when there's no electricity, you have no heat. How do you stay warm? We just have to put on our coats, wrap ourselves in blankets and go to bed, she says. That's how we live. That's how we exist. Born into war, she says. I'll probably die in war. And it's a very real concern. As the mayor said, the conditions are going to be harsh. Uh, the population that he has there, some of them are elderly, some of them are frail. Um, and without, uh, without some bit of heating every day, um, the life for them is going to be nearly, nearly impossible. He said the government is trying to set up these sort of heating stations where people can uh, get, you know, charge phones, uh, get some little bit of heating. But people in, in that town, for example, and so many others, are just afraid to go outside when they don't need to. They're afraid of, of shelling. Well, we were there, the town was shelled um, on more than one occasion. It, it's, it's a compound of everything uh, that's going to make this winter so difficult. Oh, well, thanks for bringing their stories to us. Nick Robertson, thanks so much. The Biden administration says Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should be granted immunity from legal action over the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. His, fi his fiance, who filed a lawsuit against the prince, said Jamal died again today. Alex Marquardt joins us now with the details. Alex, good to see you. Uh, talk us through why 
this U-turn by the Biden administration, you know, why did it back out of its promise to hold MBS accountable? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Allison. A lot of people are asking that question today, accusing the Biden administration of going back on its promises. Uh, what they are saying simply is that they are standing by past precedent, by principles that have been laid out by common and international law and treating MBS uh, as they would like to see uh, American heads of state and heads of government treated. Now, just a few weeks ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was just that. He was the crown prince, the son of the king. He was the defense minister. He would not have qualified for immunity in this case. But then his father, King Salman, made him the prime minister, and that made him the head of the government. And so he then qualified for immunity in this case that was brought, as you said, uh, against him back in October of 2020, two years after Khashoggi was killed by Khashoggi's fiance and the human rights group uh, Dawn that he founded here in, in Washington, D.C. And it is that that the Department of Justice pointed to, his status as the head of the government uh, in their filing that they made late last night, which was really the 11th hour uh, of, of the deadline, which was yesterday, um, in, in saying that uh, in, and, and pointed to this recommendation from the State Department that he get immunity. I spoke to someone at the State Department. This is part of this uh, spokesperson's statement. This suggestion of immunity does not reflect an assessment on the merits of the case. It speaks to nothing on broader policy or the state of relations. This was purely a legal determination. Across administrations, there is an unbroken practice of the United States recognizing immunity for heads of government while they are in office. So, Allison, legal determination unbroken practice. That is the, essentially the excuse that the State Department is making. We should note they were under no obligation uh, to, to, to make this recommendation to the court. They had been invited to, to do so. Uh, here they are saying that they are upholding uh, past precedent and principle. Uh, but uh, again, there's going to be a lot of anger today, uh, a lot of sadness. I, I actually heard from Jamal Khashoggi's uh, fiance overnight. She told me today uh, that she is absolutely devastated and she holds President Biden and personally accountable. Allison. Interesting word you use there, excuse. Alex Marquardt, thank you. Straight ahead, more on Twitter. Talk about projecting hostility? Ouch, Elon, let that sink in. We're live at Twitter headquarters, San Francisco, where the writing's on the wall, literally, for the new boss. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. It's been a wild week in the world of crypto, particularly for FTX. Overnight, we learned that authorities in the Bahamas have seized digital assets from the now bankrupt FTX for, quote, safekeeping. The Securities Commission of the Bahamas said Thursday urgent interim regulatory action was necessary to protect the interests of clients and creditors. Let's get more now with Matt Egan, who joins us now. Great to see you. So, you know, another day, another new headline for FTX. Do you know specifically what digital assets were seized? And I mean, is there anything even left? Yeah, great questions, Allison. Uh, the statement from securities regulators in the Bahamas was relatively vague. They said that they have taken control of uh, digital assets 
uh, presumably we're talking about cryptocurrencies, from FTX Digital. That is the Bahamas-based unit of the FTX empire that filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy earlier this week. Regulators in the Bahamas say that they have taken control of these assets for safekeeping. They've directed that they get transferred to a digital wallet that is under the control of regulators. Another uh, stunning development in just a series of uh, amazing developments in this, this, this bankruptcy. I mean, it's hard to think of anything in the relatively brief history of crypto that has caused as much chaos in as short amount of time as the FTX collapse. And here's one of the ironies. One of the reasons why people have been drawn to cryptocurrencies is that they've been thought to be somewhat or uh, mostly out of the reach of government regulators, of authorities. And here we have a situation where FTX imploded so spectacularly that government authorities are actually taking control of the crypto assets uh, from customers who were keeping their money at FTX and through no fault of their own, now can't get those, get, can't get those funds back. Yeah, the irony of it all, it really does sting. I mean, how much does this upend the confidence of other exchanges like Binance, like Coinbase, you know, considered to be the, the stronghold in, the, in, this, um, in this arena? I think that is an open question. I mean, when you think about how trusted FTX was, how big of a name, it was, it was basically a household name. Tom Brady, Giselle, Steph Curry, other athletes um, and celebrities had, you know, lent their star power to FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, one of the faces of the crypto industry. And so for this to happen to them, uh, of course, it's going to undermine confidence to some degree. Now, other exchanges um, would tell you that, you know, things are differently there, that they might not do some of the things that FTX is accused of doing, that they are more closely um, regulated and audited. Um, but, you know, I think that ultimately that's going to be up to customers. And it will be interesting to see if we see some people move away from exchanges altogether, particularly given some of the findings that have come out of the, uh, the bankruptcy filings in the last 24 hours from FTX. Uh, the former lawyer who uh, oversaw the liquidation of Enron he painted the picture of basically a train wreck at FTX, a company where he says he's got no confidence in the financial statements, um, calling them unreliable, saying that um, there's been a mishandling of confidential data, diversion of corporate funds uh, to be used to buy homes in the Bahamas for employees. Again, all of that coming out of this bankruptcy filing. And Allison, it's never a good sign when the former Enron guy is shocked and appalled. The worst corporate failure that he's ever witnessed. And yes, he oversaw um, the downfall of uh, or the bankruptcy of, of Enron. Yeah, I know it is it's just stunning. I'm sure we'll talk again soon with a yet new headline for FTX. Thanks very much. After the break, a company in crisis, staff leaving in mass, a social media platform teetering towards collapse and a billionaire CEO Struggling to regain control. We're live at Twitter headquarters next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. We are back on First Move here. Uh, U.S. stocks up and running for the last trading day this week. A higher open for the major averages with the bulls trying for a second straight week of gains. Sentiment getting a boost this week from a softer read on wholesale prices. 
But Fed officials say they need lots more evidence that inflation is falling before easing up on rate hikes. Returning to the social media mess, that is Twitter, which has locked out its remaining workforce after many of them said no way to Elon Musk's demand for hardcore work. Badge access has been suspended at all of its offices, including at San Francisco headquarters, where last night a projector beamed insults on the wall about the billionaire owner. And that's where we find CNN correspondent Camila Bernal. She is at Twitter headquarters for us. So I'm curious what activity, if any, you've seen there um, outside uh, Twitter's headquarters there. Have you seen anybody, any workers go inside or out? Hey, Allison. So nothing this morning. It is still very early here in San Francisco. So we'll be here throughout the day, but it's still unclear exactly how many people are going to want to come back and how many people, frankly, are choosing to leave. We do know that many of the employees were posting messages on Twitter and on the company's Slack channel, essentially saying their goodbyes. There's a former executive that talked to my colleague Oliver Darcy uh, and said that this is basically a massive exodus. Look, there is anger, there is confusion, there is sadness among Twitter employees, former employees, and even Twitter users. Many, many people uh, posting with the hashtag RIP. Twitter and many of them were actually heartfelt messages, emotional tweets, while others were jokes and, and memes and even Elon Musk uh, tweeting out some of these memes. But he also tweeted something that's important. He said, you know, we just hit another all time high in Twitter usage. He followed it by uh, LOL or laughing out loud um, and then by a let that sink in. So, yes, high Twitter usage. But the problem here is that he is still going to need the money, the advertisers, he's going to need people to stay at this company, to run this company. He will have to convince some of these key players to stay, or he's also going to have to just uh, try to bring in engineers who maybe have no idea what to do at Twitter, but that will have to do this hardcore uh, working for him. Um, Despite the fact that there is a lot of questions about the future of the company as well, one thing uh, we do know for sure is that the office will be closed today. Uh, there was an email that went out to employees that CNN obtained. There is no explanation as to why they're actually closing the office, but they did say they would open up again on Monday. Um, but of course, many people just wondering what will happen next. Those that choose to stay and, and who will come back on Monday will come back to a very different office. And look, Allison, I've talked to employees, one of them, a former employee who left before Elon Musk got there. She spent seven years at Twitter and told me, I am heartbroken. And she pointed me to another one of her colleagues who said that he was in mourning. So just people who've spent so much time, who have devoted many years of their lives to this company, who are now watching and are honestly just heartbroken. Allison? Yeah, it is heartbreaking, not just to lose your job, but to lose your job in, in which you did something, where you built something from the ground up. Camila Burnell, thanks so much. All right, let's bring in Dan Ives. He's Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Great to have you on the show, Dan. Great to be here. So I have to ask you about your reaction to the latest Twitter chaos. Chaos is the word I'm seeing thrown about. Um, what's, what's your reaction? I think chaos is almost you know, an understatement. Look, I, at the end of the day, this just continues to be a circus show. And it's really a Game of Thrones that's going on internally. 
between Musk and Twitter employees, you know, as you've said, I mean, you could have Twitter usage go up, but you need the engineers and developers to maintain the sort of ship and also increase advertiser dollars. That's the problem. And Musk culture with Twitter, I mean, it, you know, I wouldn't expect any candlelight dinners uh, anytime soon. And come on, I just have to point out, he tweeted that Twitter usage is up. He did put it LOL. I mean, first of all, how can we even trust what he's saying? And who's minding the store anyway to count the numbers, right? I mean, it's a problem here, isn't it? I mean, this is a company, yeah, that he didn't did and then didn't want. And now it seems like he's just, it feels like he's just throwing it away. I mean, how is this going to end? Well, it's not going to end well. I mean, it comes down to like, if he wants to throw away $44 billion, He's doing a good job in terms of going down that path. And I think you really need to play nice in the sandbox to turn this around. I mean, okay, cuts need to happen, right? And there's ways to go about it. There's ways not to go about it. It's been a black eye for Musk in terms of how he's handled it. And I think it's been frustrating even for Tesla holders just because of that brand that's so associated with Musk. Yeah, and you make a good point. I mean, Musk's attention has really been split between Twitter and Tesla and investors. They've been concerned about him being stretched too thin and, um, you know, leads us to the next headline that came out saying that Elon um, had a successor in mind to take a CEO role at Tesla. I'm curious how much this would calm investors at Tesla. And but what also does it mean for Tesla's future with Elon Musk possibly stepping away as CEO? Does that mean his focus isn't on Tesla either? Yeah, look, I think Musk ultimately remains CEO of Tesla, likely through the end of the decade. I'd be shocked if it was sooner. Now, look, he'll have potentially a successor, someone that could, you know, come in down the road. But but I think a big part of the Tesla story, the hearts and lungs, is Musk. A big part of the multiple is Musk. And that's why it's something where he is not going to really control in terms of Tesla, but it just comes down to a balancing act between Twitter, SpaceX, and Tesla in what you know has really been a twilight zone that just continues to go from episode to episode. Yeah, there's also a money issue here, we, we would think. Um, Twitter is estimated to have $1 billion uh, of a debt service payment um, that Musk secured to, to complete his takeover and the company's ability to make that payment. It's been in question how concerned are you that he may have to sell more Tesla stock? Well, you just nailed that. I think that's a lingering concern because right now Twitter is essentially quicksand in terms of bleeding money. He cut costs, but the debt, that put an albatross over on the store in terms of what they have to pay. You know, If they continue to be in the red, he'll have to either find partners or fund more in terms of Twitter. And then that goes back to the frustration. You're selling diamonds in terms of Tesla, to buy a $2 slice of pizza in New York City. So I'm curious where you think um, you know, Twitter's going to be in six months or even a year from now. What, what is the site going to look like? Will it even exist? It's a fork in the road. It either goes down, you know, that he starts to turn this around, monetize the freedom of speech issue. He's able to kind of talk the game and not in reality really do many changes advertisers start to come back on the platform, you cut costs, and, and then you could start to move this in the right direction and eventually down the super WeChat-type model. Now, the other one's a darker path. Continues to go down the circus show route, you know, ultimately employees leave, you know, then do you start to, down the road, be a potential MySpace or AOL? So this is 
this is a key three to six months ahead in terms of what the future of Twitter is. And his brand, his brand, his name has certainly taken a bruising here. It's look for someone that's been almost Teflon-like among the loyalists. It's a black eye in terms of how he's handled it. And it was one thing he ultimately acquired a house he didn't want. Okay, everyone gets it, but now turn around, have those experts ultimately manage it. The way he goes back on an hourly basis, it's exhausting, and it really continues to be just a black cloud over the name. Exhausting. Yes, it has. Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Still to come on First Move, a new water company is taking a heavy metal approach to ending plastic pollution. I'm going to talk with the CEO of Liquid Death after the break. Welcome back to First Move. A startup with an unconventional name is making a splash on the beverage scene while helping to fight plastic pollution. Liquid Death sells water in 16-ounce cans that, yes, look like beer. It raised $70 million from investors last month, bringing its value to $700 million. But it's not just about uh, the company's words, murdering your thirst. In addition to a partnership with Live Nation, uh, to help end the use of single-use plastic water bottles at concerts and events, Liquid Death donates 10% of profits to combating plastic pollution with, with its Death to Plastic campaign. Joining me now is Mike Cesario. He is the co-founder and CEO of Liquid Death. Mike, pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, for those who don't understand Liquid Death and, and the, the cult following that you have, just to point out here, this is water, straight water, how can water in a can be on pace to be the fastest growing non-alcoholic beverage of all time? Something one of your investors recently said. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize how big the water category is in beverage. Beverage is now the largest or sorry, bottled water is now the largest beverage category above carbonated soda. Um, brands like Dasani and Aquafina that are just water in a plastic bottle do over a billion dollars each a year in the U.S. alone. So it's a huge category. And at the end of the day, we're really building a brand that is far bigger than just what the liquid is in the can. And we've started with still water. We then went to premium sparkling. We recently um, launched flavored sparkling um, in early January. Um, and then next year, we're actually launching liquid death iced tea. So we're building a brand that's definitely bigger than um, just water in a can. And I'm going to get to the brand aspect in just a moment, but I want to talk about the um, sustainability factor of, of your product as well, because you tout that the water and its packaging are eco-friendly. It's in um, a recyclable aluminum can, but wouldn't the most environmentally friendly and cost-effective way to drink water be to simply fill a reusable bottle? Yeah, I, I think it depends on how you look at it. Yes, at the end of the day, everybody, 100 million Americans using reusable water bottles anytime they want water would be ideal. It would also be more eco-friendly for you to make your own clothes at home and not buy them from the store or to make your own iced tea on the stove versus going and buying a ready-to-drink. I think that's an extreme end. What we're really trying to do is offer a legitimate mass solution to plastic bottles. Um, and I don't think that 
trying to get everybody in the world to use a, a reusable uh, container is going to be a realistic solution to the plastic problem. All right, let's get back to the branding aspect of, of all of this. When you look at your success, I'm curious what you think about this. What percentage of that success would you say is because of the branding versus the product itself? I mean, this is water we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think in packaged goods, there's not a lot of truly powerful brands. So I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around the value of brand, where I usually use an example that people understand. Look at fashion. A Gucci t-shirt goes for $750 that's made of 100% cotton. You can buy the same shirt made from the same material that serves the same function at Target for $15.99. Same exact thing, but people understand, oh, I get why a premium fashion brand could command that because it's about brand. Um, but I just don't think people think that way when it comes to beverage and packaged goods. It seems like you've relied a lot on social media like uh, Twitter and Instagram for a lot of this branding. And I'm curious what you would do if Twitter collapses and what other social media would you turn to? Um, you know, what other ways would you communicate with your fans? Obviously, you have a huge following on Instagram at over a million followers. I need to I need to follow you on Instagram to be over help you with that million. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are there, are there with Twitter. Yeah, we actually, Twitter is our probably least used platform. Um, and I don't even, we don't even do much advertising on Twitter. It, it was never super effective um, for us compared to some of the other platforms. I mean, we're on Twitter and, you know, we do some fun things on the platform. But for us, our main platforms by far are TikTok and Instagram. Okay, so you talked about how you're branching out into other drinks. I'm curious where an IPO fits in all of this. And I know in, you, have, you have said that um, you're, you know, you're exploring an IPO, but I'm curious what are the factors for you and your company in, beyond considering an IPO to actually committing to going public and how soon? Yeah, I mean, we're growing. We've been growing consistently over 200% every year since we launched. I mean, we only first started selling product in February of 2019. Um, we think we've got a ton of growth ahead of us. And, you know, looking at some of the other um, comparable beverage companies in the public market, I think there's excitement from us and, and our board to, to go that direction um, if and when it makes sense, um, you know, not opposed to the the m a route in the future if that ends up being where it's going but ultimately we want to do what's going to what's going to bring most shareholder value and what makes most sense for us and, and where the growth trajectory is well i certainly love the cleverness of liquid death and the cleverness i noticed on twitter you had a post of a taste test of two um haters um i really enjoyed watching that if you haven't seen it you should go to twitter i'm not looking to advertise for twitter though but go to your i would say yeah. go to your account mike cesario ceo of liquid death pleasure talking with you thank you take care we knew it was trouble Ticketmaster shutting out the swifties and canceling public ticket sales for taylor swift's upcoming tour the latest on the ticket turmoil next Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick, Ticketmaster, taking heat from diehard Taylor Swift fans this Friday. The ticket site canceling public sales for the pop star's upcoming tour after a chaotic pre-sale period. Swifties, mm, not ready to shake it off. Christine Romans joins us now. So talk us through why these tickets were taken off uh, the market. 
Sure. So there was a pre-sale fail, I guess you could say. I mean, the pre-sale was for verified Taylor Swift fans who had a code so that they could get and buy the tickets um, a day early. The public sale was supposed to be today. And that pre-sale was just totally oversubscribed. And there were all kinds of glitches and problems. I mean, people who thought that they were verified, you know, Taylor Swift uh, fans found themselves their code wouldn't work. They were in a queue forever. They were getting mixed messages back from um, Ticketmaster. So it was really a hot mess. Now, Ticketmaster says they just weren't ready for the volume of demand. And we're also told that there may have been bots that aren't supposed to be involved, but that were. So you had literally millions and millions of requests for these tickets, way more requests than they had actual physical tickets. And this thing uh, really all fell apart. You've got the Texas Attorney General and others now starting to look into this. You have members of Congress who are saying, hey, wait a minute, this sounds like a monopoly when there's not comp- This doesn't happen in Europe where there's more competition. You know, why is this one company allowed to have just this iron grip on all these tickets and it's such a, just such a, a waste of time and energy for so many Taylor Swift fans? No word from Taylor Swift uh, about this, by the way. But if you look at some of the prices that are all now going on StubHub, I mean, $5,000, one of the highest prices for a ticket at MetLife Stadium. Uh, SoFi Stadium, that's an August 4th date next year. Lowest price for 60 highest of uh, 5700 so you can see already these pre-sale tickets which we were supposed to go to verified users are already out there on these secondary and tertiary markets um, and they're way more than the, um, than, than the stated uh, the stated ticket price will public sales open back up or are you getting any information about that I mean, they canceled it today, so we'll have to see if they're going to open up other public sales. But at this point, that pre-sale, that, that, was, <laughs> that was a total, total mess. Those are the tickets that are out there, and they have not announced whether there will be more tickets open for sale. You know, you know about this, you know, the politicians, they're, they're bringing their hands about this. They're upset about it. But, you know, we've been talking about this I, at least yeah. since the 90s, just concert goers to musicians yes. upset about this. I mean, quickly, is anything going to come of this, do you think? Yes or no? So Pearl, Pearl Jam, I don't know. Pearl Jam testified about this in 1994. Nothing happened. Bruce Springsteen fans were outraged last year when it was $5,000 to get a ticket. Nothing happened. Now, the Swifties, though, maybe they're the ones with the sway. Yeah, we shall see. Christine Romans, thanks so much. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World is next. Have a good weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.